church there about the possibility of working with them. And then uh, next week, I think he is in one of the two other places he's headed to go. But let's remember him in our prayers as he is out preaching in other places. As has already been mentioned uh, in the reading of the scriptures in Romans 8, we'll be talking tonight about the Holy Spirit and the Christian. Those who may be joining us for the first time in these studies, this is the third of some studies we've been doing on the Holy Spirit. I was asked last Sunday morning to deal with the question of the Holy Spirit in conversion and why some received the Holy Spirit before others did. We tried to answer that and that sparked some interest and several people commented about wanting to learn more about the Holy Spirit. This morning we talked about the Holy Spirit in creation, the Holy Spirit in revelation, and the Holy Spirit in confirmation of the message. Tonight we want to focus on Romans 8 and talk about the Holy Spirit and the Christian. And our objective is to see what the Holy Spirit does for the Christian and how he does it. There are several things mentioned in that reading that was read to you by Evan just a few moments ago about the Christian and what the Holy Spirit does for the Christian. Some of which he does to the Christian and some of which he does for the Christian. We'll make that distinction as we go further. But let's talk about Romans 8, the Holy Spirit and the Christian. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the word spirit as is used in the context in Romans 8. Whether it's capitalized or in lowercase tells you nothing. You cannot tell by the capitalization or the lack thereof as to whether that refers to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit. That must be determined by the context. And you would assume if it's capital that this must be referring to the Holy Spirit. Remember now that from previous studies that when the New Testament was written, it was either written in all lowercase or all uppercase, depending on which century the, the, um, the manuscript or the copies were made. So it was either all lowercase or all uppercase. So you cannot tell by capitalization whether or not the Spirit intended for that to refer to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit. It's just the word for spirit. And we have to determine by the context, something that is said around that, as to whether this is talking about the Holy Spirit or not. Well, if it's capitalized in your translation, that means the translators assumed and thought that was referring to the Holy Spirit. It may not refer to the Holy Spirit. And we'll determine that as we go further in our study. So let's look at Romans chapter 8 now. What I want to do is, and this may seem quick, but we're not doing a textual study of Romans 8. But I want to give a quick run through of Romans 8, what Romans 8 is saying, and then come back and list some things that it says about the work of the Spirit. That's the point of our study. So this is going to be a real quick run-through of Romans 8, a very difficult chapter in, in some sections. It's a very meaty chapter. You can't cover Romans 8 thoroughly in one lesson, and we're not going to try. But I do want to give a quick summary of that. So open your Bible to Romans 8 if you're not already there, and here's what Romans 8 is about. Let's get a quick overview. Romans 8 deals with no condemnation in Christ. This is the end of the first major section of the book of Romans. Three major sections, 1 to 8, 9 through 11, and 12 to 16. Well, this is the end of that first section. And in chapter 8, what he is arguing for is there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Here are four things that he talks about. There is deliverance from that bondage that he just talked about in chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this bondage? Remember that, Romans 7, 24? Well, that bondage is, you're delivered from that if one is in Christ. Well, we're going to see that we're heirs if one is in Christ. And furthermore, we suffer if we're in Christ, and we have the love of God if one is in Christ. Let's make a quick view of each one of those sections. What's he saying here in the first of those sections? 
Well, his point here is that if we're in Christ Jesus, if we, had been, if we have been justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That is, if you walk after the Spirit. Now, there's a big question among commentators. Is that walking according to what's in interest of your human spirit, your soul, or is it talking about the Holy Spirit? We'll talk more about that in a moment. But if you walk after the Spirit... I might suggest, though, that we can harmonize those by saying that if it's talking about an interest of your spirit, your soul, that that means you're following after the teachings of the spirit. I think both are are perhaps implied, but nonetheless. Then he goes on in verses 9 through 11, there is deliverance if the spirit dwells in you. So the spirit of God dwells in you. That's one of the things we're going to see the Holy Spirit does for the Christian. He dwells in the Christian. And then furthermore, verses 12 to 16, there is deliverance if one is in Christ, if you're led by the Spirit. So those that are led by the Spirit put away sin, they put sin to death. Those who are led by the Spirit are children of God, he tells us. So you begin to see that the Spirit is involved in the the life of the Christian. The Spirit dwells in us and we're led by the Spirit. That's what we're seeing thus far. Those are two points we're going to talk about. But his point is, their deliverance comes to those who are in Christ. If we're following after the Spirit, if the Spirit dwells in us, and if we're led by the Spirit. Second section of the chapter, 17 to 25, is talking about we are heirs. If we are children of God, that automatically makes us heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. Now he talks about the condition that if you are a child of God, that automatically makes you an heir. And then he says, here's the nature of that. He talks about the hope that we have, the glory that is not seen, and our attitude ought to be this earnest expectation. But now it's in that context that he tells us something about what the Holy Spirit does for us in this sense, that he gives us evidence that indeed we are the heirs of God and children of God. More about that also in a moment. But here's the third section. I said this is going to be quick. A quick survey of chapter 8. Here's the third section of the chapter, 17 to 24. That we suffer, or 17 through 30, we suffer if one is in Christ. Now what's his point here? Verse 17 said that if we are children of God, we will suffer. That is, those who are the children of God suffer persecution. That if you are a child of God, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to suffer. But then here is some help that will get you through that suffering. Like what? Well, we have the hope of eternal life, verse 18. All suffer. We'll talk about who the all is in a moment, 20 to 22. The Spirit intercedes for us. We haven't seen that before. We haven't seen that. If we had just started reading the New Testament, we haven't seen that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, up to this point. Hadn't seen a thing about the Spirit interceding for us. So that's a new thought for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. That's something else the Spirit does. And then we see all things work together for good. More about that list here in just a moment. But now let's get the end of the chapter. We're just getting this overview that there is the love of God that we have that we cannot be separated from if we are indeed in Christ. If God is for us, no one can be against us. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now that's a quick summary of what Romans 8 is about. Four major sections all having to do with being in Christ, but the Spirit comes to play and there is something the Spirit does in nearly every one of those sections. Now let's go back to this matter of suffering for a moment. Here are some things that will help us in the midst of suffering. 
when we as children of God are suffering, now remember verse 18, let's go back to Romans 7, and in verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children then heirs, join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. This is a suffering peculiar to those who are children of God. That means it's persecution. This is not suffering because you've got a disease that everybody else in the world may get. This is not suffering because a tornado came through and tore your house down because that happened to your neighbor as well. This is a suffering that is because you are a child of God. Now, what will help us through that? Well, verses 18 to 20, the hope of eternal life. Having a hope of something better beyond is going to help us. Verse 18, the suffering is short. Look at verse 18. For I consider the suffering of the present time not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. This is short versus eternity is the point. Verse 22, I said we'd come back to this, all suffer, he says. I don't think that all there refers to all of mankind, but notice at verse 22, he says, for we know that the whole creation, the whole creation seems to have reference to the church in this context. So I think he's talking about the people of God. He's talking about suffering as children of God, that all of God's people suffer. And why do I think that? Because the whole creation groans and labors in birth pains together until now. And then he talks about that we, the creation, are waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. The whole creation isn't thinking of that, but God's people, God's creation, the church, is what he's talking about. So all of God's people suffer. Now verse 26, we're going to come back to this. I'm just trying to list again. The Spirit makes intercession for us. Somehow the Spirit is working on your behalf in the midst of your suffering and interceding to God on your behalf. And you say, I thought there was only one mediator. Well, we'll try to harmonize that in a moment. But the Spirit, the text says, is interceding for us that helps us through our suffering. And then he says again, all things work together for the good of those that love God. Now let's open our Bibles now to Romans 8, if you're not already there. And let's begin to list some things the Spirit does either to us or for us. There is a distinction that we'll make in just a moment. First of all, let's start verses 9 through 11 now. In this context, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, and one of the conditions is if the Spirit dwells in you. So I'm learning from that, that the Holy Spirit dwells in the child of God. Let's see what the text says, beginning at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's what the text says, the Spirit dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there we are again, he who raised up Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. So in verses 9 through 11, he mentions three times that the Spirit of God dwells in us. Once in verse 9 and twice in verse 11. So let's talk about the Spirit dwelling in us. Deity dwells in the Christian. Not just the Spirit, but I want to establish the fact that both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three, dwell in the child of God. Let's start with... 1 John chapter 4. It is not just that the Bible, we get, we get carried away sometimes and I hear lots of discussion about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in the Christians. 
Probably more has been said and written on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit than the indwelling of the Son or the indwelling of the Father. At least I have in my materials files and files on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But very little is being written and said about the Father and the Son dwelling in us. But the Bible affirms that. Let's look at 1 John chapter 4 beginning at verse 12. 1 John 4 and verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. What I'm wanting, you say, well, I saw something about the spirit abiding. That's true. But did you notice that God, the Father, abides in us? That's what he said at verse 12. That's what he affirms again at verse 13. We see that again in verse 16. And we have known and believed that God, that love, uh, the love that God has shown us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So I'm learning from that, that God the Father dwells in the Christian. You say, how? That's not our question at this juncture. We'll come to that in a moment. We're going to answer that. All we're trying to establish is the fact the Father dwells in the Christian. Well, let's see that the Son does the same thing. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 17. In Ephesians 3, we see... In verse 17, that the Father or the Son dwells in us. Look at Ephesians 3 and verse 17. That the Son dwells in us, the text says, by faith. Chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in your hearts. So the text says that the Son dwells in the Christian. Well, we don't read this one again because we just read Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit dwells in the Christian. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all dwell and abide in the Christian. Here's another principle. 2 John verse 2 says the truth abides or dwells in us. So truth dwells in us. Now here's the question. Does that mean that there is some personal literal indwelling of the Father? When you say, well, the Father dwells in me, does that mean that literally and personally, God the Father has come inside of your body and he literally is inside of you? I don't know of anybody that affirms that. Oh, no, God the Father is within me. Well, what about the Son in Ephesians 3? When he dwells in you, is that some personal, literal indwelling of the Son so that I can say, the Son of God, Jesus is literally inside of me, personally inside of me. It's not his influence. It's not through some medium, but, but he personally... No, I don't know of anyone that argues that. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, someone says, we know the Bible says the Spirit dwells in me. They think that's some kind of literal, personal indwelling where the Holy Spirit is literally inside of you. Now, if that's true of the Holy Spirit, why isn't that true of the Father and why isn't that true of the Son? Because same language is used. The Father dwells, the Son dwells, and the Holy Spirit all dwell in the Christian. Or is it that... The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and even truth itself, dwells in us through the Word, which is the revelation of the Holy Spirit. How does the Spirit dwell in you? Does He dwell in you through the, through the Word? You see, if you feed upon somebody's writings, let's forget uh, spiritual things for a moment. Let's suppose you feed upon someone's writings, and, and you begin to think about the writings, you accept the writings, and you begin to believe everything they say, you could easily say that person who is the author is dwelling in you. How so? But personally, literally, no, no, no. But through the influence of the message they have presented. 
You have accepted the message. You have embraced the message. And the same thing is true concerning the Father. The Father dwells in us, but through, it's through the Word. It's through the influence of the Word. Same thing with the Son. Same thing with the, with the Spirit. Now let's go in another direction. I want us to see that the Christian dwells in deity. We don't hear much about that. We often talk about God dwells in me. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. But do you know that we dwell in God? There's a sense in which that's true. Let's see if that's not true. Let's consider the fact that the Christian dwells in the Father. Go back to 1 John chapter 4. We were there just a moment ago. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, we saw that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him. There is a sense in which we dwell in the Father. He dwells in us and we dwell in him. It really is talking about a relationship, isn't it? That we're dwelling in God, God dwells in us. Not a literal, I'm not literally inside of God. God's not literally inside of me. It is a relationship that I have with the Father, a relationship I have with the Son. Let's look at John 6, if you will. John 6, I just want to get the concept before you that the, there's a sense in which we dwell in the Son. John 6, and in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There is a sense in which the Son dwells in us, I abide in Him. But the text also said that we abide in Him, that I abide in Christ. How so? More about that in a moment. Galatians 5, let's go to Galatians 5 and verse 25. In Galatians 5, there is a reference to our dwelling in the Spirit. Look at verse, if we live in the Spirit... Let us walk in the Spirit. Now, there's a sense in which we live in the Spirit. And so we abide in the Spirit. We abide in the Son. We abide in the Father. We abide in truth. Same four things we saw a moment ago. But the question is, do we literally and personally dwell in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, no. I, no one would argue that I'm literally inside of the Father. I'm literally inside of the Holy Spirit. And I'm literally inside of the Son. It refers to a relationship that we have. I want to consider some principles that we've seen in the other two lessons, but are we going to come back and hit that again, that the Spirit operates through the Word? How does the Spirit operate? This is the same question we raised when we talked about the operation of the Spirit in conversion. That the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit operates upon this sinner, but the question is, does He operate somehow directly, or does He operate through the Word? And why do we raise that question? Well, we talked about this concept of Calvinism. Calvinism was a logical concept, a false concept, but a logical concept. Where Calvin argued because man is totally depraved, that naturally led to the unconditional election doctrine, which also logically led to the limited atonement, which logically led to irresistible grace, which logically led to the perseverance of the saints and back to the logic of this endless cycle then. This is the thing we're interested in, what's called irresistible grace, or another way of wording that, the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. That same concept that the Spirit somehow has to directly do whatever it does in conviction and conversion is the same kind of concept that people have when they talk about the Spirit of God directly dwelling in me. It's the same kind of concept. So let's go back to some principles we noticed in the first lesson. Romans 8 and in verse 2. Very text that we're talking about. Romans 8 and verse 2 called the revelation of God, the law of the spirit of life. Isn't that interesting? He starts this, this great chapter on the note that the revelation of God is called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 
Now, why does he call it that? Because the Spirit revealed that message. And furthermore, the Spirit uses that word as his instrument that's called the sword of the Spirit. So this is the law of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit revealed. It's his tool or it is his instrument. Now, here are some passages that talk about how the Spirit operates upon one causing him to be a believer or be convicted. We looked at these passages last time. I want to notice just a couple of those. Like, for example, Acts 18 in verse 8. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now, how, did they, how were they convicted of their sin? It was through the influence of this word which the Spirit had revealed which is the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit was doing the work, but He did so through the Word. The same thing in Acts chapter 2. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. They were convicted by the message that was preached. Now I want to quickly notice this list, and one very similar, because this is a repeat of what we saw in the first study. Some of you haven't seen this. But we can show where the Bible tells us the Spirit does certain things, but the Word of God does certain things. That's not contradictory, like we're born of the Spirit, we're born of the Word, we're quickened by the Spirit, we're quickened by the Word, we're saved by the Spirit, saved by the Word, we're led by the Spirit, our text here, we're led by the Word. Are those contradictory? Not at all. The Spirit does His work through the influence of the Word, which is His revelation. Well, let's look at the list again, another, another list. We have the fact that we walk in the Spirit, we're comforted by the Spirit, we're cleansed by the Spirit, we're convicted by the Spirit, but all of that is accomplished by the Word. Again, a contradiction? No. The Spirit operates through the Word. That's how the Spirit does what He does. Now let's look again at some parallel text. Now let me remind you of what we mean by parallel text. There are certain books that are parallel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics for a reason. They are parallel. We recognize 1 Timothy and Titus as parallel. Often what you find in one, you'll find in another. They seem to be written about the same time, um, making the very same points. Well, anyone who has even a smattering knowledge of Colossians, for example, and Ephesians, notices that they're parallel. You can find all kinds. Do a Google search and, and look at parallels in Colossians and Ephesians, and you'll find a whole parcel of parallels between the two books. They are parallel books. So let's look at the parallel again, as we did in our first lesson. This text says, Ephesians 5, just before giving the command to sing, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to be filled with the Spirit. But in the parallel account, just before the command to sing, he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that contradictory? Not at all. What I'm learning by the parallel is that the way that I am filled with the Spirit is let the word of Christ dwell in me richly. Those are not two different things. That's saying the same thing. That is, the way the Spirit fills my heart is through the influence of the Word. So when I let the Word of Christ dwell in me richly, that's how I'm being filled with the Spirit. So someone says, I, I, I'm full of the Word, but I want to be full of the Spirit. You are full of the Spirit if you are full of the Word. Not the Word and the Spirit are the same, but that's how the Spirit operates, as we have already seen. Now let me raise some questions about the indwelling of the Spirit, and then we'll move on to the other points. For those who would say that the Spirit somehow literally and personally in, is literally inside of the Christian, the question is, what else could the Spirit need to do for man that is not accomplished through the Word? When we know what the Word can accomplish, what does the Spirit need to do for me that's not accomplished through the Word? Secondly, very similar to that, what does the Spirit do to man that is not accomplished through the Word? In other words, go through your Bible and say, well, here's something the Spirit does to man. He does this to us. He saves me, or whatever it is. Or He leads me, or He guides me. What 
that he does to man that's not done through the word? What would it be? What would that list be? And furthermore, if the Spirit literally and personally apart from the word dwells in the Christian, why does he, uh, what does he do that is not done through the word? What's he doing for you? You say, well, I believe the, the Spirit is literally inside of me. All right, what's he doing for you? Start listing the things he does. You say, well, he leads me. Is he doing that apart from the word? He guides me. Is he doing that apart from the word? You say, well, uh, he's sanctified me. Is he doing that apart from the word? What's he doing for you that's separate and apart from the word? Those are serious questions that we need to ponder. Now, let's go to this point at verse 14. We're trying to list things the Spirit does, either to us or for us, found in Romans 8. Verse 14 says he leads us. Let's see what the text says. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God. So the passage states as a fact that indeed we are led by the Spirit. Stated as a fact, not the how, not this verse. In other words, we look at the verse and some, you know, the Bible says the Spirit leads me, but, but I, I, I'm, I want to know how he does that. All this passage is doing is stating the fact, not the how. How is told elsewhere, but not right here. It's just stated as a fact that the Spirit leads us. Let's go back and see how the Spirit operates. This is where we're tying the lessons together and showing the answer to one question like conviction and conversion is very similar to the question about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the leading of the Spirit. Same basic principles. We're going back to the basics. The Spirit operates through the Word. We saw this in Ephesians 6, 17. That take with you the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is what? The instrument or the sword of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit operates. So when the text is telling me that I am led by the Spirit, how am I led by the Spirit? This passage is telling me I'm led by the revelation of the Spirit, by His Word. I'm influenced by the Spirit through the Word. Again, how does the Spirit operate? Does the Spirit operate somehow directly in leading me? Or does He operate somehow through the Word in doing that? Now remember this. When I say, you know what, this, I think the Spirit leads me. And there have been some brethren who got off on this question a few years ago, saying, arguing that I think we're led and influenced by the Spirit separate and apart from the Word. But they didn't like the idea that the Holy Spirit was convicting and converting people separate and apart from the Word. But if I take a passage that says I'm led by the Spirit, and I say, you know, that, that uh, being led by the Spirit means I'm directly, but when He operates upon the sinner, He has to do that through the Word. That's inconsistent. Very inconsistent. The Spirit operates indeed through the Word. Now, the Spirit does not directly lead us in our thoughts, in our singing, in our teaching, in our praying. If so, then He's separate. He's working separate and apart from the Word. There have been brethren who thought, you know, I, I think here's what the Spirit does for me. He leads me in my thoughts. So that uh, maybe in Bible class, when I make a comment, I think the Spirit was leading me in that. Was that separate and apart from the Word? Was that? There's no biblical evidence of a claim when someone says, I'm led separate and apart from the word by the Spirit in my singing, in my teaching, in my praying, and in my thoughts. If God's doing that, God's a respecter of persons because there are others that don't think they're being led by the Spirit in their thoughts. If the Lord is leading you in your thoughts, and here's someone else over here who's a faithful Christian not being led in his thoughts, then God must be a respecter of persons. Let's quickly notice verse 16. I say quickly because this is... 
a point we've already considered in the first of these three studies. But I want to mention it in this context because it is dealt with in Romans 8, and that is the Spirit bears witness to us. The Spirit bears witness. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Again, <clears throat> may I suggest this passage states that as a fact, <coughs> and not the how. Not in this context. He doesn't actually tell us. Here's how he does that. But it states the fact that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Remember now, we've already established the Spirit operates through the Word. Now, when my spirit agrees with the Holy Spirit, then I know I'm a child of God. Let's see how this works. What he's talking about is the Spirit bears witness. How does the Spirit operate? Through the Word. My spirit has reference to my knowledge of myself, my inner man. And the text is saying when the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, in other words, when they agree, then I know I am a child of God. Here's how that works. The Scriptures, the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, tell us what we need to do, like repent and be baptized. Now, I know whether or not I've done that, and when I say, you know what, I've done exactly what the Spirit told me to do, when those two agree, then I know I'm a child of God. I don't guess at it. I don't kind of feel that way. I know for a fact that I have evidence of pardon. So when we talk about evidence of pardon, how do I know that I am a child of God? How do I know I'm forgiven? It's not some warm feeling that I have. It's because of the knowledge I have of the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. That's how we know that indeed we are the children of God. Now let's notice one more thing in verse 26 of what the Spirit does. And what I want us to notice is that He intercedes for us. All the previous three, He dwells in us, leads us and bears witness, are things the Holy Spirit is doing to us. Listen to this distinction. Those are things the Holy Spirit is doing to us. At verse 26, we're learning something the Holy Spirit does for us, but this is something He's doing toward God. A big distinction. Now let's talk about what the verse says. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. This is going through that suffering, for we do not know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There's some difficulty with the verse, to say the least. But I want you to notice the text says the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. What is that verse talking about? Well, let's establish, first of all, there is a difference and a distinction in an intercessor and a mediator. Why do I say that? The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. Not two, but one. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 5, and that was identified as Christ. There's only one mediator. So some have argued that this passage is not talking about the Holy Spirit being an intercessor because there's one mediator. Well, the text didn't say it was a mediator. It said there was an intercessor. Let's see what the difference is. A mediator is between two parties and represents the two. He mediates between the two. That's why Christ is the perfect mediator. He was both man and deity. So he stands between the two. And represents the two. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. An intercessor stands by one and represents one and pleads on his behalf. By the way, by the way, we intercede for others, don't we? Don't we make intercessions? First Timothy 2 and verse 1. 
And doesn't Acts chapter 8 and James chapter 5 talk about us interceding on behalf of others? That doesn't make me an, a mediator. So when I say I'm making intercessions for someone, I'm pleading on their behalf to God. I'm not trying to mediate because there's one mediator. So I'm trying to establish there's a difference in a mediator and an intercessor. So the fact the Bible says there's one mediator does not negate the fact that verse 26 is talking about the Holy Spirit at all. The Holy Spirit is not serving as a mediator. He's serving as an intercessor. There is a distinction in the two. Now, look at verse 34. Verse 34 uses the word also, speaking of Christ. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen from the dead, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who also makes intercession for us. So Christ also, he's not the only intercessor, uh, intercessor. He also, also in connection, if I say I also own a car, that means somebody else owns a car too. I also own some property. That means somebody else owns some property. If Christ also makes intercession, means somebody else is making intercession. Who else was mentioned in the context? The Spirit, at verse 26, makes intercession for us. Now let's raise this question. How does he do that? How does he do that? Someone said, well, he operates through the Word. What we've seen is he operates through the Word in what he's doing to man. This is not something he's doing to man. He's doing this for man. And this is something he does toward God. But let me suggest this. It really doesn't matter how he does that. And I really don't care how he does that. You say, why doesn't it matter? Because this is something he's doing not to me. He's doing this to God. I just need to know he's making intercession. Well, how does he do that? It doesn't matter to me. I don't care how he does that. I just know he's interceding on my behalf to God. How does he do it? It doesn't matter. We don't have to know. The how is not told. Again, this is something done toward God for man and not to man. Now, if he was doing something to me, I might want to know how he's doing that. But he's doing this for me. And all I need to know is, going through suffering, when I'm suffering persecution, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian, the Spirit is making intercession to God on my behalf. Now, let's talk about the groanings mentioned in verse 26. Just briefly, and we're going to end. Here's the point. That the Spirit pleads to God on our behalf. But back to verse 26, just for a moment. That he says at Romans 8, 26, for uh, he makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That has caused and stirred all manner of discussion. But perhaps Clinton Hamilton in his, Brother Hamilton I might add, in his commentary on Romans captured the thought. He said his sighings or groanings are not expressed in human language. That's why it's called groanings. This does not refer to the groanings of the Christians, but to the Spirit's. Apparently the idea is that the grief of the Holy Spirit for the Christian is deep, but is not expressed in words of human beings. This refers to intercessions or pleading that he does on behalf of Christians. Some have thought he's talking about the groanings that we have, and, and I, 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 re- I really don't, I don't understand what the groanings are. This is, he can communicate to God without human language. In other words, the Holy Spirit can make an intercession to God in a way that he doesn't have to do that in the English language. He doesn't need that. In 
he doesn't even have to do it in human language to do that. He can do it with groanings which cannot be translated into words that we could utter. You say, well, well I, I don't, you don't have to understand what the groanings are. You don't have to. This is something the Spirit is doing on our behalf when we suffer. So, what have we seen in Romans 8 that the Spirit does for the Christian? He dwells in us. He leads us. He bears witness to us. The Holy Spirit is very active. Holy Spirit's not dead over here. The Holy Spirit is not locked up in a cage where He's inactive. He's very active, just like the Father and the Son are very active. What's He doing for us? He's leading us. He's bearing witness to us. And He dwells in us. He's very much alive. But then He's also doing something else for us. We have an intercessor, Jesus Christ, but we also have an intercessor of the Holy Spirit who pleads to God on our behalf. And we have a mediator working on our behalf. And all of that's working on our behalf. But just as the Father and the Son are interested, the Holy Spirit's working on our behalf, making intercession for us. Whatever it is He does, that's said to encourage me somehow, to make me bear through those sufferings and those trials, whatever they may be. There may be one more present tonight who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?